2: From the
3: most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson.
0: It is Monday, September 26th, 2022, a brand new broadcast week here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Thank you very much for tuning in every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Then around the clock for free on demand on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com for all of the details there. You can follow us at Guy Benson Show on Twitter and on Instagram. I'm the political editor at TownHall.com and a Fox News contributor. Tonight, I'll be on Gutfeld! at 11 p.m. Eastern Time, Fox News Channel. Really looking forward to that, as always. We have quite a lineup for you here on this Monday. Starting this hour with Charles C.W. Cook of National Review. Always looking forward to chatting with Charles. Then in our next hour, we have like a bonus interview. Here's what I mean by that. Joe O'Day is running for U.S. Senate in Colorado. I think he's a high-quality candidate out there in a tough state, but he's running a good race. On the campaign trail with him today is Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas. So O'Day and Cotton are going to appear jointly together on this show at the top of the next hour. Should be fun. See what they have to say. Later on in our middle hour, Bill Hammer will join us here in studio. I'm in New York, I should note, for Gutfeld and all the TV that i am been doing. So Hemmer will stop by our studios up here. And then in our last hour, Byron York of the Washington Examiner, he wants to walk through a fact check. On claims being made about immigration and the border crisis and illegal crossings by the left that I think needs to be corrected. We want to get the record straight here on The Guy Benson Show. And that should be a good conversation as well. So five guests in store for you here today. Before we get to any of that, I want to talk about this. I saw a clip just flying across social media over the weekend. It has gone viral. This one tweet that I'm looking at has well over 100,000 likes and retweets of a soundbite at a conference in Austin, Texas. The Texas Tribune has this Ideas Festival, and a lot of politicians and political figures and personalities were traipsing through this conference over the course of the weekend. One of whom was Pete Buttigieg, who is apparently the transportation secretary. In the Biden administration. If you're not familiar with Pete, here's the basic story. He was mayor of a small city in Indiana, then decided he wanted to run for statewide office in Indiana. He failed. He lost by a lot. Then he decided he wanted to run the Democratic National Committee, ran for the chairman position, lost. And then it was time for him in his mind to be president. So he ran for president. That also didn't end well for him, although He did, given his record, he did perform relatively well overall. He then, because of that presidential run, get included in President Biden's presidential cabinet as transportation secretary. It's been an interesting portfolio for him based on his expertise. There have been some real problems on this front. I'm not really sure what sort of job he's doing because it appears that he spends a lot of his time at these types of events pontificating and telling a certain type of liberal exactly what they like to hear in soothing, smooth sound bites, He's very good at that. By the way, for his political future, which I think he has spent a lot of time plotting since he was in the womb, perhaps, he has realized that Indiana might be a dead end for him, so they have now moved to Michigan. So if you're a Democratic senator in Michigan, be careful. I think that there's someone who might want your job sooner or later. That might be the next hopscotch Stop along the way for Pete Buttigieg, who knows. But here's the transportation secretary at this event in Texas, and he was asked about the border crisis, but specifically these Republican governors sending illegal immigrants to blue sanctuary jurisdictions. And he decided to focus in on Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida. I think he looks at DeSantis and sees someone as perhaps a future rival of his because obviously this is a man who has every intention of running for president. Again, he sees DeSantis as a rising person on the other side of the aisle. Of course, DeSantis has won a statewide election and made consequential governing decisions, which I'm not really sure we've seen very much from Secretary Pete. That being said, and nevertheless, Buttigieg decided that he was going to focus his critique on DeSantis and boy. Lefties are going crazy for it. They love it. The tweet that I'm looking at right here is captioned. It's from one of these resistance Twitter accounts. When Pete Buttigieg comes for someone, he doesn't carry a sledgehammer. He wields a scalpel. And in this must-see clip, Pete slices Ron DeSantis into a million little pieces. Whoa. Well, that sounds pretty dramatic. Let's see how this went. I'd like to react. I have a few thoughts. Starting with cut 17.
4: Obviously, there are issues with the border and with migration. But these are the kinds of stunts you see from people who don't have a solution. Like, where have these, Governor DeSantis was in Congress. Where was he when they were debating immigration reform? What have any of these people done to be part of the solution? So, you know, I get if you're after attention, it's one thing to call attention to a problem. When you have a course of action, as as some of the folks here speaking up about an issue exercising their First Amendment rights have done, or in in elected office, it's another to just call attention to a problem because the problem is actually more useful to you than the solution, and that helps you call attention to yourself. That's what's going on.
0: So I think Pete knows a thing or two about attention-seeking and ambition, but that's what he is putting on Governor DeSantis here. And saying that is what the Florida governor has been up to. Now, of course, there's also Greg Abbott in Texas who pioneered this whole thing. Doug Ducey also getting on board in Arizona. And Buttigieg went on in the same answer and cut 18. Listen here.
4: The problem, of course, it's one thing if that was just people being obnoxious, but human beings are being impacted by that. You flee a communist regime in Venezuela, you come here, and then somebody tricks you, somebody using Florida taxpayer money for some reason, tricks you into going from Texas to Massachusetts. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not just ineffectual. It is hurting people in order to get attention.
0: Okay. I don't know how it hurts someone to fly them to Martha's Vineyard when they've agreed to go there and signed a waiver to that effect. When they were found homeless on the streets... In overwhelmed border communities in Texas, you put them in a hotel, you got them a shower, you gave them three square meals and got them to one of the nicest places in the country that calls itself a sanctuary jurisdiction. I guess that's cruel and harmful to people. That's the Pete Buttigieg spin on this, although that's what they're all saying, right? This has been their talking point here for days. Now, there's a few things that stand out to me as I listen to the entirety of that answer. And I listed a few of them on Twitter last night because I was interested to see what Pete was going to have to say about DeSantis. I'll say this, Buttigieg, when he ran for president, he had people sometimes attacking him unfairly for various reasons, including that he's gay. And there was some innuendo and ugliness about that from both sides. And as someone who's also roughly his age, I think a little younger, but also gay and somewhat in the spotlight, I would stick up for him when I thought he was being treated unfairly or in a wrong way he also seems reasonably bright he seems friendly enough but I think in some ways he is really overrated and to have this answer that we just heard pumped up as this brilliant dissection of Ron DeSantis I'm just not seeing that at all and I think DeSantis would welcome that debate in fact by doing what DeSantis did with Martha's Vineyard and that whole, admittedly, stunt, the point was to raise this debate and force this debate that a lot of people wouldn't touch, wouldn't talk about, didn't want to even recognize or acknowledge what was happening, including a lot of people inside the Biden administration. And it's not like DeSantis is uh, some fool out there who says, oh, yeah, let me not think this through. Let's do the thing and force a debate. And then when the debate arrives, he doesn't know his stuff. DeSantis knows his stuff. And I think that if for whatever reason he ended up on a debate stage with Pete Buttigieg, I don't think it would go as well for Pete as a lot of his acolytes and sycophants seem to think it would. Point one I would make here is that governors can only do so much. On immigration policy. This is a federal issue. When governors have tried to get tougher at the border, they're often challenged by the federal government when it's run by Democrats. So they can't do that. Their hands are tied. This is national sovereignty. It's the job of the federal government, the federal government and this administration, his administration that he's serving in judge, under Biden. They are the ones responsible for this. They're the ones who are failing. They're the ones whose policies are creating this huge problem. And it's not just a small problem. This is historic, the failure. We've gone through this over and over again. They are blowing out records. Two million people captured at the border this year alone. A million, roughly a million gotaways under Biden. Known gotaways. It's totally out of control. Another month, an eighth month with 200,000 or more Encounters at the border in August. Those are the numbers. That's the math. Lashing out at Ron DeSantis or Greg Abbott or anyone else is a deflection away from the people who are actually responsible for this. And those are the people in the Biden administration, period. Now he says, oh, they're all being tricked to go here and it's cruel and it's, it's harming people. I quibbled with that. I made my points on that front as well. Also, it seemed like his central argument from Buttigieg was that DeSantis and Abbott offer no solutions on any of this. I said, this is a stunt that you would see from someone who wants attention but has no solutions. Except if DeSantis were sitting there on stage, DeSantis could rattle off, I would guess, off the top of his head, half a dozen solutions that he and other Republicans have been demanding begging the administration to consider like if you just look at where the trump administration had this issue in about 2019 where they got a handle on the problem with a whole suite of policies it wasn't perfect but it was a hell of a lot better and more functional and less messy than what we have right now the problem was a fraction of Of what it has exploded to under this president, the remain in Mexico policy was working, which has been undermined and effectively abandoned by Biden. The safe third party country agreement with the northern triangles uh, nations. Right. That was a part of the policy as well. Expulsions under Title 42 that the Biden administration have now ended because they say the pandemic's over, except when it's not. Those are three easy ones. Then you can get into some enforcement plans that Republicans have been asking for and proposing for years that have been fought tooth and nail and rejected and blocked in Congress every step of the way. It is not true that Republicans don't have ideas when it comes to this border crisis. They have many ideas. On the broader issue of immigration and in this crisis in particular, I think it is interesting for Buttigieg to demand all these answers, all these solutions to a problem that his team created. They made the mess. And now he's saying, look at these people over here. They've got no solutions for the problem that we created. Except even that isn't true. They do have solutions. They do have ideas. The Democrats just reject them. You can say your enforcement-first policies are unfair and mean-spirited and xenophobic and racist and all the words that they always use. You can say that Trump was awful and none of his ideas were good, so we had to reflexively get rid of all of it, even though some of it was succeeding, actually. What you can't do is say that none of those ideas even exist. Have the honesty to say, they have ideas, we don't like them, we have our own ideas, which approach do you prefer, America? I know what the results are. Are telling me, but this is, I think, this less than honest approach, and this tick that Buttigieg has, especially in this answer, pretending like solutions and ideas that absolutely exist that he just doesn't like don't exist at all. So you just have these sort of myopic, nihilistic Republicans doing something, and they have no other ideas in their head. This is wrong. Now, he says, where was DeSantis when he was in Congress? Well, he was fighting for things, and the Freedom Caucus and the House you know, Republican Study Committee, these conservatives, they put all sorts of bills out there. Judge and his ilk were against all of them. You can say they were wrong. You can't say that they weren't there. I've pointed out before, I'm kind of a squish on immigration, or at least I have been in the past. Dream Act, I was open to that. I still am. Some Path to Legal Status. For a lot of the people who have been here for quite a long time, was open to that. But as I've said now more recently, all of that stops. Not a single inch should be conceded on this until we get actual enforcement. That's the crux of the problem right now. And by the way, last but not least on this, and I'll probably continue in the next segment, the official position of the Democratic Party and the Biden White House is that the border is secure. They tell us that every day, over and over again. It's a lie. It is a demonstrable, insulting lie. And Buttigieg seems to be offended that Republicans have the audacity and the gall to highlight that lie. If Buttigieg agrees with the lie, if he's going to repeat it, the border is secure— then it is 100% legitimate for DeSantis or Abbott or anyone else to shine a bright spotlight on the lie every single day using virtually any means necessary, including this. Does Pete endorse that line? Is the border secure? Yes or no? He might have to poll test that one for 2024 before he answers. I'll pick this up right after a short break. Responding to Pete Buttigieg. Here as we get going on The Guy Benson Show, stay tuned.
3: Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com.
0: I'm Guy Benson. We're back. And I'm just replying to this viral clip from Pete Buttigieg over the weekend going after Governor DeSantis and this migrants issue. It's interesting that he raises communism and people fleeing communism and basically saying these Republicans are hypocrites. They talk about communism, but here they are playing politics with these people's lives as they're trying to leave, in this case, Venezuela. I would love to hear Buttigieg try to explain why refugees from communist countries who moved to the United States ultimately overwhelmingly vote Republican as opposed for as opposed to his party. I wonder why that might be. But I think this is also a distortive argument on his part because while some of the migrants involved in this recent series of controversies have come from places like Venezuela and Cuba, they're a tiny fraction of the overall problem, millions of people who have crossed the border illegally. Since Biden took office, millions of them could be four or five million in total. And to try to pretend like what this is about is people fleeing communism and the Republicans refusing to accommodate them and to welcome them into America. I think that that is a fairly cheap, politically expedient talking point that does not reflect the broader crisis for which, as I'll say again, they are responsible and they have no answers. Hence, all the attacks against these Republicans for doing anything about it or drawing attention to it. Also interesting how all these presidential aspirants and wannabes on the Democratic side, they all seem pretty interested in picking a fight with Ron DeSantis. Isn't that telling? Whether it's Gavin Newsom or Pete Buttigieg. Edge. Edge. -edge, Buttigieg.
5: Families have a lot going on.
3: talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
0: Welcome back. It's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com for our free podcast. That's on demand, totally free every day. Let's get now to our first guest of the program. He is Charles C.W. Cook, senior writer at National Review. Charles, good to have you back.
6: Thanks for having me.
0: You have been dogged on the issue of President Biden's student loan debt so-called forgiveness scheme. Since before it happened, you wrote a lot warning against it as illegal. Then he pulled the trigger on it and you've just been breathing hot fire on it ever since. And I've wanted to have you on the show to discuss it. We, of course, have talked about it here. But I think it's a topic. I know some people on the left claim that it polls well and it's something that the Democrats should run on or at least shouldn't shy away from. It's going to be a feather in their cap for the election. I'm not really sure the politics cut that way. But before we get to the politics at all, I think we should stick with substance and legality. Let's start there. Just lay out the case in in case folks maybe have forgotten about it. It's now been a few weeks. The news cycle moves very quickly. Why do you think that this is so uniquely outrageous?
6: Well, it is uniquely outrageous, and it's not uniquely outrageous. It's the latest example of executive lawlessness which has accelerated in the last 10 to 15 years and has largely gone unchecked, except perhaps at the polls. President Biden knows this is illegal. About a year ago, this was mooted as an idea for Congress. And certain members of Congress started saying, no, 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 he can do it on his own. Chuck Schumer said this, Elizabeth Warren said this. And Nancy Pelosi famously gave a press conference in which she said the president can't do this on his own. He needs Congress. In fact, Nancy Pelosi said most people don't know this, but she explained why. She said this wasn't even a question on the table. Uh, Fast forward a year, suddenly we start to hear rumblings that the president of the United States, Joe Biden is going to do it anyway. What changed in the interim? Nothing. What changed since the Department of Education last year put out a memo saying it couldn't do it? Nothing. And nobody, Nobody in the United States was pointing to the eventual rationale that the Biden administration gave, which was that a you know, esoteric post-9-11 law that was supposed to help people who volunteered uh, as soldiers or first responders, the 2003 HEROES Act, somehow magically contained this provision that gave the president the capacity to write off student debt, by which we mean transfer it to the taxpayer. Uh, if ever there is any sort of emergency in the United States. Uh, If you read this memo, Guy, it it is embarrassing. I suspect the the lawyers who wrote it knew that they were on shaky ground. Um, But even if we accept that this law magically enables the president The rationale the president gave for its use that we're currently in an emergency has been repeatedly undermined by his own words. Right. His administration said we're not in an emergency when they were trying to end Title 42 at the border. I thought uh, the administration was correct about that, even though I like the policy. Uh, The president said on 60 Minutes last week that there is no emergency. The pandemic um, is over. So uh, to recap, (laughs) the president knew it was illegal. Everyone else knew it was illegal. They then picked a law that didn't apply to student loan forgiveness, and they justified its use on grounds that they themselves have said don't apply.
0: Seems pretty comprehensive to me. It seems like a fairly open and shut case. You make it persuasively. Let's move to the next part of the problem here. Let's say people are willing to ignore that it's illegal. I think a lot of people are. On substance, I think it is terrible policy, deeply unfair – all sorts of moral hazard issues arising from it. Tackle that component of it, if you would.
6: Well, I I think it's an extraordinarily bad idea. I I think it's one of the worst ideas that we've seen come out of Washington uh, over the last five years. Uh, The president of the United States knew that it was a bad idea. This is evident. This was pushed by Elizabeth Warren. It was pushed by... Uh, Kamala Harris. It was pushed by Stacey Abrams. Um, Joe Biden knew it was a bad idea. Jill Biden knew it was a bad idea. Her main interest is education, and she's telling him, don't do it, don't do it. And and the reason for that um, is that it contains all sorts of moral hazards. Uh, because it is a flash in the pan rather than structural reform, and because it helps the people who least need our help. Now, I am a free market guy. I'm not big on government aid. But if you're going to give government aid, you should be doing it to the people who are really, really, struggling, you should not be giving it to the group that has the lowest unemployment rate in the country. That's college graduates or people with some college. You should not be giving it to people who have the best health outcomes in the country. That's college graduates. You should not be giving it to the people who have the greatest earnings potential in the country. That's college graduates. You should not be giving it to people Uh, who did best during coronavirus, that's college graduates, and who have already benefited enormously from government largesse in about two years' worth of student loan um, payment deferrals, first under President Trump, now under President Biden. This is a hugely regressive move. This takes money, quite literally takes money from people who don't have college degrees, and gives it to people who do. Uh, And not because those people uh, were defrauded in some way. I I understand the argument for making whole people who went to universities uh, that turned out to be, um, you know, uncredited or or, or fraudulent or closed halfway through or what you will. Um, But people who borrowed the money, spent the money, and then benefited from it. This is... (laughs) I'm, I'm laughing because... we talk about forgiveness. This isn't forgiveness. Simply put, what we're talking about here is taking money from people who didn't go to college, didn't borrow money, uh, didn't benefit from borrowing money, and giving it to the people who did all of those things. And I I just think it's almost impossible um, to make an argument uh, in favor of it, but especially if you're going to do it in a way that doesn't actually change any of the underlying conditions that you're talking about. In the first place, there's no reform of colleges here. Well, it does make it worse, yeah, but there's no reform here. There's no change to uh, the the, the cost of college. There's no change to the structure of college. There's no change um, to the incentives uh, underlying why people go to college. And also, it doesn't help people who paid off all of their loans last week, and it doesn't help the people who are going to take out loans for the first time next year. Uh, it's just a, a, a pre-midterm cash giveaway a, at the moment when we don't have any money left, uh, we have deficits well into the future. we have more debt than we've ever had. We have a debt that is as a percentage of GDP, nearly 130 um, percent. And we have rampant inflation. And you know if you look back before COVID. And before inflation in the post-COVID era, to how this was sold by its biggest advocates, it was always that this would stimulate the economy. If we give people money off their student debt, then it will stimulate the economy. It will lead to an increase in
0: demand, which, of course, it's the last thing you want to do yes. with 10% inflation. hugely inflationary. People understand this. It will drive up all of the costs that you were talking about further. Colleges and universities will keep raising costs because they'll look at, you know, big federal government is the backstop. And that's, of course, taxpayers funding all of it. I saw one estimate was north of 80% of Americans hold none of this debt. And they're being asked to pay for other people's debt, doctors and lawyers and college graduates with these uh, earnings potentials that are far above the average American. And I think if you never went to college, which is most American adults, it's very frustrating. And then there's also the sucker problem, which is you're kind of making people who did the right thing and made sacrifices, paid down their debt. They feel like suckers because they didn't really shirk their responsibilities in a way that this would reward, I think that's also a very perverse thing as a signal to send to the country. I think it will anger a lot of people.
6: I I hope it angers a lot of people. It should anger a lot of people. And and I'll add one more point to this, and that is that I think that there is a class element here. And I don't mean that in the Marxist sense. I mean that in more of a social sense. Um, I, I don't understand why as a country, we favor college graduates in the way that we do. I don't have a problem with college graduates. I am one. I know you are one too. But I don't think college graduates are better than other people. Mm -hmm. I don't think that we should privilege them. I also don't think we should expect as a culture, uh, as many people to have college degrees as do. I've seen receptionist jobs where a college degree is the barrier to entry. I think that's absolutely absurd. If you have, say, a, a, a pair of twins. You know, let's say they're both 18-year-old men. Uh, we'll call them, you know, Edward and Jonathan. And Edward goes to college and Jonathan starts a landscaping business. And Edward borrows money to go and do history. I said, the course, I did, so I'm not being disparaging. Uh, and Jonathan says, no, I'm going to start a landscaping business and I need a Ford F-150 and I need advertising and I need a bunch of equipment. And they both continue on their life path, and they've made their decisions, and they're different people. And then the president comes along one day um, and says, hey, you know what, Edward, because you're so great, because you went to college and you're studying history, I'm going to cut $10,000 off your loan at your brother's expense. Yep. <laughs> your brother is out there working. He's doing his own job. Again, I don't think either of them is better or worse, but one of them is now paying off $10,000, maybe $20,000, depending on their circumstance. Um, of of the other's debt, no one's come in and said, "Well, we're going to pay ten, twenty thousand dollars off your truck." No one's taking ten, twenty thousand dollars off off the the landscaper's line of credit, because Biden and his party think one of those people is better than the other one. I think that is deeply destructive in a country such as ours.
0: Yep, yeah, that's right. And if you look at top line numbers, the White House will point to them. This is a popular move. See, look, fifty six percent of the American people support what the president did. Then there's other polling where if you ask just slightly beneath the surface, beyond the top line, do you support the forgiveness, however they phrase it, if this would require and then any downside is introduced, the numbers turn completely belly up and it's not even close in some cases. It becomes a big gap with people opposing it. And I think it's more telling than some of the polling and top line polling what we're seeing from some embattled sort of swing state statewide Democrats, Tim Ryan, I think Mark Kelly, a few people, they'll vote with Biden 100% of the time, as they always do, but at least rhetorically they have made a few gestures that they're not comfortable with this. They don't want to embrace this as part of their policy. I think they see more clearly the politics of this than I guess the White House is wish-casting. I wonder if you agree.
6: Yeah, of course I agree. I mean, this is absolutely classic when it comes to polling. If you ask the average family in the United States, do you want to spend 10 days at Disney World? They'll say yes. If you then ask them, do you want to take the time off work? Do you want to pay for the travel that you need to get there? Do you want to put it on your credit card? Do you want to spend the money? Um, Do you you want any of the opportunity costs that come with uh, that sort of outlay? Um, Then they'll tend to say no, or at least they'll say yes, but only once every five years. I mean, this this is what we saw with Obamacare. Yep. Poll after poll, we were sold on this. It's popular. It's popular. Yeah. If you only include the benefits, people did like the the changes. Um, what they didn't like was the cost of those changes. Mm-hmm. And once you added those costs in, the. the Approval dropped, you know, to twenty, thirty
0: percent. And the trade-offs, um, Charles, I would say, in this case, are quite easy to explain. To summarize them quickly, you've done so here in less than one full radio segment. I think you can even distill it down further to about one minute. I think Republicans should absolutely be hammering on this across the country. Uh, just the fairness word is used all the time by the left, wielded as a weapon. It can be used against them. I think here very very powerfully in a very potent way. Charles, before I let you go, you have another piece that you've written about President Biden and his administration's sort of triumphalism and how they keep trying to take victory laps on things, and then very rudely and thoughtlessly, actually, reality keeps intervening in a way that makes it more and more difficult for them to do so in a politically successful or palatable way. Just quickly summarize your thoughts there, if you would.
6: Well, there was a piece in Politico this morning to which I responded that was essentially lamenting that President Biden wants to declare the economy a success and talk about the legislation that he and his party have passed. But that um, that's precarious for him, given the you know, rising price of gas and inflation and the looming recession and so on and so forth. And I just thought this was instructive. I mean, the reason he can't take a victory lap is because there's no victory. So it is not true <laughs> that all of the economic problems we face are Joe Biden's fault or the Democratic Party's fault, although Mm -hmm. I think they've made a lot of them worse. It is true that right from the moment he came into office last year, Biden has not been interested in dealing with them. He is bored by them. He wishes they weren't there. His agenda does not encompass them. He did not want to come in, as he should have done, and say, look, we've spent huge amounts of money during COVID. Nobody's fault. We have debts through the wazoo. Our deficits uh, are increasing. We seem to be facing inflation. We seem to be facing the prospect of a recession. That's going to be what my presidency is about. But he didn't want to do that. Uh, What he wants to do is wave it away. He really wants it to go away. And inflation, I'm afraid, doesn't work like that. It's uniquely pernicious, actually, because it's not just with inflation, the issues that result from inflation. You also get lots of difficult, dangerous, unpopular, politically uh, precarious issues that result from what you have to do to fight the inflation. You know how you get rid of inflation historically? Interest rate hikes up to unacceptable levels and a recession. And he, you know, he's going to have to go through this. It's not all his fault, but the, the least he can do is look as if he is interested in it rather than that he wants to stand and say mission accomplished when no such thing has been done.
0: Yeah, he's been unable to do that. He's tried. And even if he wanted to go the course that you suggested, I don't think the base of his party would have let him. They had the power. They wanted to enact sweeping social change with that power. And him talking and acting responsibly simply was not an option among his base. And he seems to govern in fear of them a lot of the time. And hence the pickle that he is in. Charles C.W. Cook, our guest, senior writer at National Review. Charles, enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. We'll take a break and be right back. It's The Guy Benson
7: Show.
3: The Guy Benson Show. More next.
0: We're back here on The Guy Benson Show. You know, what's interesting. Sometimes when you're on social media, Twitter in particular, there's some new story that breaks or something happens somewhere in the world, and all of a sudden everyone's an expert on these esoteric sort of little-known topics that people really know very little about. And today we are all experts on Italian politics they had an election in Italy, and we all have a bunch of thoughts on it. And frankly, a lot of the people commenting strongly one way or the other would probably guess that the main candidates involved were named Mario and Luigi. That's about the level of expertise that they have on this stuff. So I'm going to come here in this brief segment that we have together and not pretend to be an expert on Italian politics because I'm not. I can name a handful of their leaders through the years, Berlusconi, Mussolini, and people are making that comparison because right-wing populists have won the election. When left-wingers win somewhere, even like commies or socialists, it's either ignored or or something good. Look at the progress being made. When right-wing populists win somewhere, it's like, here we go, it's Mussolini and Hitler rolled into one, and she's a woman, which makes it even worse. I guess that's their new first ever female prime minister. Big loss for women, I'm sure we're told, because she thinks the wrong things. A speech of hers is going around on the right side of things where she's making a case about being a mother and a woman and a Christian and an Italian and how the other side is trying to wipe those identities away and sort of make people into numbers. It's an interesting speech. I don't know much about her. I'm not here to tell you that she's great. Generally, when the left loses, I think that's a positive development. I'm not sure if I'm going to love her whole program, but the freak out because right wingers won an election somewhere, I thought we were pro democracy. We respect democracy, I thought, right? Hmm. Another hour coming up Guy Benson Show.
3: the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show.
0: A new hour underway here on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday. I'm Guy Benson. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website, the podcast, always free, on demand. Check us out at Guy Benson Show for GuyBensonShow.com for anything that you might need related to the program, including that free podcast. You can also follow us on social, at Guy Benson Show. I'll be on Gutfeld tonight on the panel. Looking forward to that, 11 p.m. Eastern. Hope to see you there. You can also set your DVRs. Fox News alert as we enter our middle hour. The Dow closing down again today, 329 points, ending at 29,260. Also, we are tracking Hurricane Ian Now a Category 1 hurricane, and we're starting to see a handful of evacuation orders coming down in parts of Florida. We'll keep an eye on that as we pray for our friends down there in the Sunshine State. Not exactly sure how that's going to play out, but of course, our Fox weather team here is watching it very closely. As we begin this middle hour of three, I'm very pleased to welcome not one, but two guests at the same time. We almost never do this. And what a twofer, what a duo we have with us here, starting with Joe O'Day, who is the U.S. Senate nominee in the Republican Party out in Colorado, a state that's near and dear to my heart. And out there campaigning with him is U.S. Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, who's been on the show before. First time for O'Day, a couple of times now for Cotton. And Joe and Senator, it's great to have both of you here.
1: guys, thanks so much for having me on today. Really appreciate it. Good to be here in Colorado.
0: My in-laws live in Denver. It's a beautiful state. The political direction of that state has been concerning to me here for a while. And from a distance, I live in the DC area. I'm in New York today. I've been watching your campaign. It seems to me that you're running a very smart and capable campaign out there. I know it's a tough environment. I know it's a tough state increasingly for Republicans. On the other hand, you've got a compelling background. Your opponent, the incumbent Michael Bennett, Democrat is like kind of like a guy in a milk carton. No one really knows him. He's never really done much of anything. He's just a non-entity in the US Senate. Give our audience just a sense of your background, what you bring to the table in this race, and what you're trying to drive as sort of the the factors for choosing in the Colorado electorate between yourself and Senator Bennett.
1: Well, Senator Bennett and I could not be more opposite. Uh, I've worked hard for everything I've done in my life. Nothing's been given to me. Wife and I started a business out of our basement back in the 80s. We built a company now that employs 300 families across Colorado, uh, we build roads and bridges here, so we've been involved in the transportation system for almost 35 years. We've got great families that represent us here. Um, and I'm going to take that hard work, go to the U.S. Senate, and hopefully get some of these policies straightened out that Michael Bennett's been responsible for. I mean, $1.9 trillion in rescue debt that's crushing working Americans now. It's taking away 10% of the value of our wages. In the meantime, he's passed great bills like the 87,000 IRS agents that are going to shake down working Americans. When you talk to the Committee on Joint Taxation and they're talking about people making under hundred grand are going to be responsible for 75% of these new audits. He's just totally lost track of what's important here in Colorado. It's, it's the economy. You saw what's happened on the... Uh, nasdaq again today Um, that's a reflection of where they think the economy's headed Uh, it's going to get worse and it's all about this inflationary policies and 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 then choking down our oil and gas businesses here uh, that that are making that possible and that's the democrats they're just not in tune with what's important to working americans here
0: and yet if you look at the polling you are still trailing some polls have it competitive close with bennett ahead other polls have you down you know nine ten points Based on what you're seeing on the ground, maybe your internal numbers, what is the state of this race right now with six weeks to go or so, and what will it take for you to actually win? That would be a bit of an upset if you're able to pull it off, but it doesn't seem completely beyond the realm of possibility, at least from where I sit.
1: Well, look, these polls are all over the place. What I believe is I'm the underdog. I've been the underdog my whole life. I'm not afraid of hard work. We're going to outwork this guy all the way up to and including November 8th. It's a resource issue. He's going to outspend me probably three to four to one uh, because the Democrats have created a big machine that's financing him out of New York and California. Those aren't Colorado dollars. On the ground, I'm telling you right now, we have built a huge coalition here in Colorado. We've got good, tough Republicans. We've got independent. Independence, and we've got some uh, Democrats that are just disenchanted with the direction this nation's headed. And they're excited about my campaign. My campaign's about working Americans. It's about having a voice in the U.S. Senate that'll represent those of us that, uh, you know, contribute, produce. We're the ones paying for all this tax and spend spree these Democrats have been on for so, so long. You factor that with the crime and where it's at here in Colorado. And mm. I'm telling you right now, we're going to win in November.
0: Let me bring in Senator Cotton here. Senator You obviously pick and choose the types of people that you're going to go and lend your support to, especially when you're going to fly out to another part of the country and try to help a fellow Republican. You've got a lot going on in Washington. There's a lot happening in the country. Your time is valuable as a senator. What is it about Joe O'Day in Colorado that got you out of bed to fly to that state and try to help him take back that seat?
7: Well, Guy, thanks for having me on. It's great to be on here with Joe, the next senator from Colorado. Uh, you're right that uh, I wouldn't have uh, come out here in a day when the Senate's not in session, taking time away from my own family to campaign with Joe if he wasn't going to win. More importantly, Chuck Schumer wouldn't have spent millions and millions of dollars against Joe Day if this wasn't a razor-thin race. So I encourage all your listeners to go to Joe's website and pitch in, especially if they're in Colorado like your in-laws, to make sure they are registered to vote and get out for Joe because he's going to bring very clear-eyed common sense to the United States Senate from Colorado. Michael Bennett may talk like a centrist out here in Colorado, but he votes like a Washington liberal 98% of the time with Joe Biden. Just look at the inflation that you see in Colorado. Some of the highest gas prices I've seen in my travels around the country. Why do we have all that inflation? It's because Michael Bennett cast a signing vote for the reckless $2 trillion spending bill last year. Or consider Joe uh, Biden's Uh, student loan bailout. We just had news today that it's probably going to cost at least $400 billion, which is only going to create more inflation and is grossly unfair to all those people who worked hard to put themselves through school or save for their kids or didn't go to college in the first place. Um, Michael Bennett may say that he doesn't support it. He cast the deciding vote in the Senate to make it tax-free on top of getting all that debt forgiven. And then, of course, Michael Bennett's had a chance to vote time and time again to crack down on illegal immigration, to build the wall in catch and release. Increase sentencing uh, for deadly fentanyl, and every single time he votes with Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer and the liberals in Washington. The people of Colorado are recognizing that Michael Bennett doesn't speak for them, and they want a common-sense conservative like Joe Day in the United States Senate.
0: Yeah, and then you look at just the news today. At the top of the hour, we brought you the Dow number, down again, bear market territory. I just saw a Chiron on Cavuto on the news channel. Gas prices now increasing for the sixth consecutive day. On top of everything else. And it seems, Senator, like they're kind of in party mode at the White House, whether it's with James Taylor or with Elton John. They're having a great time over there while Amer- Americans writ large are suffering. In fact, the lower down on the income scale you are, the less you can absorb all of these you know, horrible sort of factors that are all a confluence of events here that are just hammering working families, middle class families Another issue that sort of I think is undergirding and underlying a lot of these races is that of wokeness and sort of out of control, political correctness, whatever you want to call it. One recent controversy actually has arisen out there in Colorado at the Air Force Academy. Senator, I know you've weighed in on this. Where the Air Force Academy is now offering guidance in these diversity trainings, not to even use words like mom and dad, because that's offensive. You should use parents or guardians. You shouldn't say you guys. You shouldn't talk about boyfriends or girlfriends. I just wonder, from your vantage point as a veteran, is this doing anything for the actual mission and military readiness? And is this worthy of some national scrutiny or scrutiny in Colorado, if you were the Air Force Academy, foicing this kind of stuff on their cadets?
7: No, Guy. In fact, it's hurting right in this because every minute that our troops spend in those kind of indoctrination sessions or politically correct instructional sessions, is the minute they can't spend on their core mission, the young men and women at the Air Force Academy go there to learn how to fly advanced, cutting-edge aircraft and kill bad guys. They don't go to learn how to use the right pronouns. This is bringing discredit on the Air Force Academy and on the Air Force and on our military. And when Joe O'Day and our other nominees across the country help us take back the Senate in November, I promise you that we'll have thoroughgoing oversight hearings into what has been what's been happening to politicize the Department of Defense, including other agencies and departments like the Department of Justice, but especially at the Department of Defense, which is our military that keeps our country safe from foreign threats. It should be producing real warriors, not trying to produce social justice warriors.
0: Joe O'Day, you just heard there a moment ago, Senator Cotton talking about Michael Bennett pretending to be a moderate, sort of talking that way, sometimes firing off press releases here or there, trying to put some distance between himself and the National Party. But When it comes down to brass tacks and voting, he's with them every time on everything that matters. If you were to beat him, if you are going to become the next senator from Colorado, what kind of senator do you want to be? Because your state is very much a purple state and maybe even a, I would say, purplish-blue state. As a Republican senator, if you win, what would your approach be in the upper chamber compared to Bennett's or, or just, you know, blazing your own trail? What do you have in mind should you win?
1: But one difference between uh, myself and, and Senator Bennett is I'm not a party guy. I'm not gonna hold the party line on everything. I'm gonna cross the aisle. I'm gonna work with anybody in the Senate that'll help me pass good bills that'll help working Americans here in Colorado. And that's gonna start with closing this border down One of the very first things I'd like to see happen is we secure this border. We take the uh, funding that they're going to put into an overzealous IRS out of this uh, Inflation Reduction Act, take that funding, let's devote that to the border, let's put more border security down there, and then let's take the lion's share of that money and let's fund our local police departments. Uh, We were just uh, out in Jefferson County this morning with Sheriff Schrader talking about fentanyl overdoses. He doesn't go a week without at least a couple of them in his community. Uh, it's outrageous. We've we've lost our, our vision for Colorado when we, we don't close this border down. Uh, right now, Colorado's number two in sentinel deaths. We've killed 1,800 Coloradans in the last year during uh, with a drug overdose. And that's just unacceptable. That's not the expectation that Colorados want. Uh, out of their government, so we're going to take the right steps to shut this border down and make sure that we secure uh, the the border, keep the fentanyl from coming across at record levels, and then also get rid of this crime problem we 've got here in our communities. We need to get more cops on the street, and that's one of the very first things that i'll take on.
0: On the crime issue, What do you think the role is there for the federal government? Obviously, it's a problem in a lot of places, especially big cities. Democrats are sort of running away from their own rhetoric, their own votes from a few years ago. The politics used to be different in 2020. Everyone was sort of... Climbing over each other to stand up to the police and talk about redistributing funding away from police and that kind of thing. Now they're swearing on the Democratic side, most of them, although, you know, the squad types are sticking to it. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, Defund the police. That was never us. No, we want to fund the police. They've kind of done a 180 for political reasons. How are you seeing that issue playing out and resonating in Colorado?
1: Well, it's a resource issue here, and I think that's the role of the federal government is providing resources to our locals so that they can hire more cops. We were down in Denver here last week with uh, uh, Chief of Police Paisen. He's telling the community he's short 250 cops in Denver. Uh, and then again this morning, uh, the sheriff, of uh, uh saying he needs 50 more bodies on the street to make us safe. So that's an area where I think the feds can come in with some funding, uh, let them hire, let them uh, conduct their business, but provide those resources. At the same time, we've got to do more to secure this border. Uh, they're telling us that they need to choke down the supply chain to get ahead of this fentanyl issue. And that means choking down the border. We need to make sure the fentanyl's not coming across at record paces. I mean, they're painting these pills uh, these different colors now. They call them Skittles. Uh, so that they can provide those more to our kids. That's just wrong. They're poisoning our kids.
0: Joe O'Day is a contractor, a business guy, He's framing himself, I think, accurately as an outsider. He's running for U.S. Senate. He's the Republican nominee. His opponent is the incumbent Michael Bennett, just like a rubber stamp, Chuck Schumer, Joe Biden Democrat out there. And helping him today on the trail in Denver is Tom Cotton, U.S. Senator from Arkansas. And they both joined us here on the show. And that's a pretty cool deal. Gentlemen, to both of you, thank you very much for joining us. We look forward to speaking again.
7: Thank you, guys. Thanks,
1: you. Thanks again for having me on, Guy. really appreciate it.
0: You bet. Love Colorado. Such a great place. And uh, Senator Cotton was wondering, are my in-laws registered to vote? Yes, they are. They will absolutely be out there November 8th, and they will absolutely be mailing in or casting those ballots for Joe O'Day. I'm very confident of that. If they're listening, I'll probably get a text, actually, on this. Joe O'Day, Senator Tom Cotton on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back.
3: Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show.
0: Back here on The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Well, this is just causing head explosions on the left. But Senator Kirsten Cinema, Democrat, Arizona, appeared with Senator Mitch McConnell, Republican Kentucky, at an event, and they were sort of singing each other's praises about the friendship that they've created. And obviously, she is significantly to his left and my left. Most of her votes I disagree with. She also ran... As an independent and a moderate, and unlike most people in her party who do that, she actually meant it. And her voting record reflects that in some important ways. For example, her unwillingness to just blow up Senate rules, kill the filibuster, to then pass a whole litany of left-wing agenda items. She won't do that. And boy, have they come after her. Even chasing her into the bathroom stall. Remember that? The activist filming her? chasing into the bathroom stall, and Joe Biden just shrugged. Well, it's, what do you say, part of the game? Part of the process, I think he said? Dismissing that. And so she stuck to her guns on some of this stuff. She used to be much more left-wing. And now she's saying things like this in Cut 26.
5: Despite our apparent differences, Senator McConnell and I have forged a friendship, one that is rooted in our commonalities, including our pragmatic approach to legislating, Our respect for the Senate as an institution, our love for our home states, and a dogged determination on behalf of our constituents.
0: I appreciate that. I think a lot of Americans view that as refreshing, but the left-wing base is losing its mind over this. They hate McConnell almost more than anyone in Washington because he's good. I, I can't stand it how many conservatives seem to hate McConnell. I think McConnell is... A really smart and effective leader. But the left really hates him. I think the proof is in that pudding for sure. And for her to come and say these types of things about him, it's another thought crime by Kirsten Cinema. It's really interesting to watch. Someone who's especially losing it is Keith Olbermann, who's on Twitter saying that he and she used to date, apparently, back when she was a good pinko. And now he's basically accusing her of being a sellout and trashing her. It's yet another classy thing in a long line of classy things that Keith Olbermann does. A man who I personally don't think is terribly well. Cinema now, I think, is in a relationship with a woman. She's pretty open about that. I would say it's a big upgrade from Keith Olbermann. Can't believe he drove someone away. Anyway, keep that up. I like this. More of this, please. Cinema McConnell et al. We'll be right back. Talking
3: about the issues you care about, Guy Benson.
0: Halfway through today's show in New York City, I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Our podcast is always free of charge on demand every day when the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com for that. With us now here in studio in the Big Apple, are you, it's brother? Bill Hemmer, co host of America's Newsroom, Monday through Friday, 9 to 11 a.m. Eastern, Fox News Channel. And, Bill, it is always good to see you. Thank you, guys. It's good to see you again and in person. It's been some time. It has. Welcome back. Thank you. Let's do a little bit of uh, political number crunching here real quick. Some interesting numbers coming out in the last few days, starting with, first and foremost, in my mind, is this ABC News Washington Post poll from yesterday. I woke up Sunday morning. I looked at these numbers. I said, whoa. I mean, this Uh this is a pretty significant survey. Now, if it's an outlier, it's an outlier. But for now you got the Republicans up five in this poll on the generic ballot, likely voters. In swing districts, they're up around 20 points. And the Republicans leading on inflation, economy, crime by double digits on those three Mm -hmm. really top-tier issues. And I wonder if we all watched over the summer the red wave that was assumed to be building Mm -hmm. really kind of recede to a certain extent – Is it maybe making a comeback? What are your thoughts here as we're six weeks out? A a lot of thoughts here. You cut me off when you're ready, okay? Because a month ago,
8: we started studying these House races. It's going to be complicated. You know, come election night, you know, when are you going to be able to call the House? Will Democrats hold or Republicans blow them out or is it the Republican by a margin? The reason why you have to study this stuff so carefully is because the census redrew the lines, and depending on who runs the state house in the various state, you're either favoring Republicans or favoring Democrats. So every, everything's shifting a little bit here and there, which could be, in a close election, very, very important. So I just want to preface it with that. I'll, sure. I'll circle back with all that. I think in summary, and I, I, I take your point about this ABC poll to heart. I, I want to mention something specifically about that. But I think the election now boils down to option A or option B. And I don't think it's much more complicated than that. Option A is that you believe the mainstream media, that Joe Biden's got the wind at his back, and that the abortion issue has come first and foremost in the minds of many women, especially in states all across the country, based on the Kansas referendum from this past summer. And if you consider option A, then yes, it will be a very close election. Option B is inflation's out of control, the market's in free fall, People are paying for gasoline still out the nose, much higher than they ever did before. Russia is at war in Ukraine. We're supposed to find a way around international crises like Putin going to war in Ukraine. The border is a disaster. Mm -hmm. The drugs are killing people. Crime in the streets. Everywhere. And then you've got the issue of crime in big American cities. That's option B. And so if you believe option A, yes, it will be a close race. If you believe option B, it'll be a blowout.
0: Yeah, I think that's basically correct. And interestingly, someone who agrees with what you just said is the former spokeswoman for the president of the United States. Jen Psaki spoke for this president for a year and a half. She's now at one of our competitors. She was on Meet the Press on Sunday, I think making her debut she said this, got some attention. We talked about it on TV over the weekend, talked about it with John Roberts on TV earlier this afternoon. Cut five. Here's Jen Psaki.
5: Look, I think that Democrats, if the election is about uh, who is the most extreme, um, as we saw you know, Kevin McCarthy touch on there with Marjorie Taylor Greene, I'll say her name, sitting over his left side, then they're going to win. Mm-hmm. Um, if it is a referendum on the president, they will lose, and they know that.
0: If the election is a referendum on the president of the United States... She worked for, spoke for, we lose. Hard to argue with that. It's just a little striking hearing that coming from that particular yeah, source. A couple
8: of things I would add on that. Yes, um, she chose to go on that show in all likelihood to say that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's point A. Point B, Gavin Newsom was saying a similar thing in Texas over the weekend as well. Point C, Beto O'Rourke wants to be a governor in Texas, and he was saying the same thing also. I was it coordinated? Eh? Can't prove it, but it sure sounds like it. Um when, when I went through that ABC poll, this is what they've determined, guy. Bear with me here. Since nineteen forty six, they've been keeping track of this. When a president is over fifty percent job approval mm-hmm. during a midterm, the party loses an average of fourteen seats. When that's a popular president over 50 percent, when you're under 50 percent, the party loses an average of 37 seats. That's right. It doesn't say when you're below 40 percent, which he uh, is in this poll, uh, correct, He's 39 in this correct. Poll. So I, I don't know where that leaves you other than I think the red wave is coming back again. And I think people have to admit it. Here's where I get caught up with this entire analysis. In. Late August, I think it was the third week of August, you had a special election in, in the Hudson Valley, which is north of New York City. Yep. It was um, District 19. And the Republican was favored to win by about two points. And the Republican lost yep. by 2.2 points. I don't understand why. You, you have no bail on the ballot. You have crime on the ballot. You have inflation on the ballot. you got all these stories coming out of Gotham every day about – You know, the vagrants in the streets and the violence and the amount of risk that you're taking by being on a subway or walking into a bodega at nighttime. Why why did that not find its way into the outcome of that vote? I don't know the answer. But we bring these candidates on our program with Dana and me every day. And I would say, can you please explain why you were unable to win in that special election? Mm -hmm. And what they will tell you is that there was no statewide election for a Republican on the ballot, which is true and they will tell you that democrats had more interesting races on that particular tuesday which is arguably true as well my pushback would be if if this is what november's about why did that not show itself in august
0: and yeah. I, I don't have a good answer yeah and then on the flip side you had the republicans flipping that border district in a special election yeah Last spring. Last spring. So I've heard a few explanations for central New York. I was less bullish on that race than some other Republicans or Mm -hmm. conservative analysts because it was an issue of high propensity voters where the Democrats – the argument is Republicans are saying they maxed out their high propensity voters on abortion. So the average swingable, swayable voter isn't going to show up for a weird special election on a completely random day they are more likely to show up on a national election day and Republicans are more apt to do well among that group this year because of okay, all the so other if, issues that you've if mentioned. If that's
4: true,
8: then option B that I describe right. is still in play. Absolutely. If that's
0: not true, it's back to A. you got to think yeah, about it's, option It's back to your two issues. By the way, I thought it's very interesting that you said, because Beto's been critical of Biden not doing enough about the border or coming to Texas. I think that's obviously political self-interest on his part. He was a big, you know, Pom pom waving Biden guy. Now he's trying to seek some distance there. Gavin Newsom wants to be president. So does Beto. They both want to be president. They, I think, are interested in the party moving on from Joe Biden for personal reasons. And I think with Saki saying what she said, it's correct and a sound analysis. I also think she wanted to make an initial splash in this new role showing I'm going to be independent, I'm Mm. going to give my real analysis, I don't speak for him anymore, and if you think I'm just going to show up here and continue my spin in a different capacity, let me disabuse you of that on day one. I think that's part of what was going on here. She also had this to say on crime, big issue, cut six, listen.
5: They also know that crime is a huge vulnerability for Democrats. I would say one of the biggest vulnerabilities. And if you look at Pennsylvania, for example, what's been interesting to me is it's always you follow the money and where mm-hmm. are people spending money. And in Pennsylvania, the Republicans have been spending millions of dollars on the air on crime ads against Federman right. because that's where they see his vulnerability. So, yes, the economy is hanging over everything. Right. But you do have to look at state by state factors. And crime is a huge issue by in the way, Pennsylvania race.
0: I mean, She's two for two here, Bill. Yes. It's, I, I'm agreeing and nodding along with Jen Psaki. She's right on crime yeah. here. Yeah. Um, you had a very
8: interesting observation. You're probably right about that. I'm going to exercise my independence in the current role that I have with, under this job. The more people who do that, the greater credibility they have. Carville's a great example mm-hmm. of how he has walked mm-hmm. the line. Here's what I, I think is happening in the background of all of this stuff. They're trying to put, push Biden off the ledge. And I think he is unwilling to go. You look at the, the the way the Washington Post and ABC wrote up this piece. The lead paragraph is not that crime's a problem or the economy's a problem for Democrats. The, mm-hmm. the lead paragraph is that the job approval for Biden's under forty percent, and they go to his viability in twenty twenty four.
0: Yeah, sort of looking ahead here, guys. There's, there's an election in six weeks. Look,
8: I mean. Uh, uh, that, that's point number one. You can go deep into so many of these numbers, Guy, and I just think it's important to point out. I, I, I looked at five things. That's number one. Number two, approval rating of 39%. Number three is what I talked about in midterm elections. I mean, if you're under 50%, you lose an average of 37 seats. Uh, point number four, the economy and abortion, depending on which argument you accept, is point number four. And point number five, the Hispanic voter is up for grabs.
0: Yes, very much so. One thing that I'm also cautioning people when I give speeches around the country previewing the election, I'll be less interested when the dust settles in November, whatever, eighth, ninth, 10th, whatever it's going to be. When we have the final numbers, not so much. How many seats did the Republicans win in terms of whether it's 14 or 25 or 37, but what is the total number of seats controlled at the end of it? Because I think if you're using, for example, 2010 as a measuring stick, Republicans famously won 63 seats that year. Massive blowout, Obama's first midterm election. Historic, 63 seats. The Republicans, I don't think, have a chance of coming anywhere close to that, not because I'm convinced this year is not going to be a red wave, but because they're already starting at an elevated level. They actually did pretty well in the House in 2020. They gained about 15 seats. They are close to a majority right now, whereas in a, in a cycle where typically there's a ton of seats won, Sometimes the out party is is at a low ebb, and that's what we saw in 2010. They got blown out in 2008. There was a lot of ground to make up. So there was much low-hanging fruit that really doesn't exist as much this time around. So. I want to see the final number, 230, 235, 240. How many seats will the Republicans control if they win the majority after the election happens? Something that's, I I think, at least interesting to me. Also interesting related to this. I want to get your reaction on this. Story from NBC News. Of the Republican nominees, this is on the House side, running in the 47 most vulnerable Democratic districts, so these swing districts, They've, they've. How many nominees? Uh, there's 47 of them. Okay, is what they've identified at NBC. 45 percent of the Republican nominees are military veterans. A third of them are women, and about a quarter of them are non-white. And if you look at them as a whole, 70 percent of them fall into at least one of those categories. That is an interesting job of recruitment by the House Republicans. We're seeing a lot of attention, you know, to statewide candidates and Senate and governor. On the House side, they have. I think, done an interesting job of the type of candidates they've been able to attract.
8: If I was Kevin McCarthy sitting here and you were talking to him, I'll I'll play the role of Kevin McCarthy. They learned in 2018 they needed to recruit good, diverse candidates. Mm -hmm. I I think they've done pretty well. We'll find out how well in another six weeks and a day. But that, that was how the Democrats turned the trick in 2018. Alyssa Slotkin. Abigail Spanberger. Spanberger yep. they, they all had military or CIA or in intellectual uh, intelligence backgrounds. We had a guy on our show this morning. He's a Vietnamese refugee. He's running in the 10th district in Virginia against Sexton. Sorry, Weston. So that's northern Virginia. That includes major parts of Loudoun County where education has been a big story. Yep. Uh, he's 50 years old. He was in the Navy for 20 years. He left Saigon in April of 1975. I said, why are you running for this? He said, when I saw the chaos in Kabul, it reminded me of what my
0: family went through in Mm -hmm. South
8: Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And I don't want that to happen in a country
0: that I love again. And that candidate is among... Those forty-seven that we just yeah. talked about, Kung and he, and is he his name. checks two of those boxes: yeah. person yeah. of color and a military veteran. With I, a very I, interesting story,
8: you raise a great point. You can go all through these House races and find very well—not ident- you can find similar
0: traits yep. in many of these candidates. Lastly, Bill, before we let you go, totally unrelated, your Bengals Ooh. one and two to start the season. Uh-huh. They picked up the win of the Meadowlands yesterday. Yes. You were not in attendance. No, I was not. Against the Jets. Do you know how
8: many times I've gone to the Meadowlands and seen the Bengals loss? Do you know how many times, like, a playoff berth was on the line and they lost? You're scarred. Guy, do you know how many times I got back on that bus and had to come in the back, back into Manhattan with Jets fans?
0: Well, you avoided that, but you got the W, one and two now. You've got Miami rolling in Thursday night. Bill, always good to have you here. Thanks, Thanks for stopping by. We'll do you it bet. again. And we'll take a break. We'll be right back on the Guy Benson Show.
3: Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show.
9: Candidate Biden didn't spend a dime or a day in the Rio Grande Valley or really anywhere in Texas for that matter once we got down the home stretch of the general election. You got to be locking eyeballs with the people that you want to fight for and serve and whose votes that you want to win.
0: Back here on the Guy Benson show, that was Better O'Rourke on the campaign trail trying to beat Greg Abbott. I saw a new poll out today that had Abbott leading by seven points overall statewide against Beto. And among the likeliest voters, Abbott up 10 points in the Lone Star State. But Bill Hemmer in our last segment referenced that from O'Rourke trying to critique Biden, trying to do that, I think, for political reasons. he's a full-blown Democrat, but he's trying to at least signal some independence. I just don't think anyone is going to buy that because this guy's a chameleon. When he's running against Ted Cruz, he's just sort of like Mr. Happy Nice Guy who's just upbeat compared to Cruz. And he's going to be kind of moderate and all of that stuff. Then he runs for president as this fire-breathing left winger who's going to go confiscate guns. Now he's back in Texas saying, oh, no, I'm not going to take anything away from you, which is just a lie based on his own comments. And now he's trying to put some daylight between himself and an unpopular incumbent president of his own party, whose job, by the way, he wants at some point. So that's Beto O'Rourke. And then the other comment referenced by Bill Hammer was Gavin Newsom, governor of California, cut one.
8: These guys are ruthless on the other side. Ruthless on the other side. That primetime lineup on Fox, they're ruthless. They dominate the most important thing in American politics today, and that's the narrative. Facts become secondary to narrative. They dominate with illusion. We are getting crushed. We are on the defense over and over and over again. It's immigration today. It was CRT yesterday. It will be ESG. Look that up tomorrow. They consistently push us against the wall. We have no compelling alternative
2: narrative. And that's on all of us.
0: This is something known to psychologists, as projection. Narrative control is the left's game. They are incredibly ruthless, especially and including this guy. But it's the primetime lineup at One Network. Oh, that's the real villain in America today. They only have basically everything else on their side. It's amazing that they allow themselves to believe this, or at least profess it the way Newsom did. That was in Texas, by the way, also. Another guy who wants to be president right there. Final hour of the Guy Benson show coming up next. Byron York is here to set some facts straight on immigration. Looking forward to that conversation straight ahead.
3: clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy
0: Benson. It's the New York City Happy Hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Glad to be here. Glad to have you alongside. Three hours a day, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And between 5 and 6 Eastern, it is the happy hour. Brought to you by the Finnish Long Drink, which is great. I've been telling more people about it. It's not just on the radio, because they sponsor. Like, in real life, I'm out there. Like, uh, spreading the good word of this delicious product. I'm a fan. TheLongDrink.com is their website, thelongdrink.com. You can find out where they're sold near you. I'm actually going to go hang out with their founder later on this evening. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only, thelongdrink.com. Our website here, guybensonshow.com, podcast free every day. Follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at Guy Show. Catch me tonight on Gutfeld at 11 p.m. Eastern. I'll be on with the whole panel this evening, including... Sharon Osborne joining the program, so that'll be interesting. See you tonight and also scheduled to be on America's Newsroom in the morning around 9 a.m. Eastern. It's just a busy time here for yours truly, and we love it. Let's get to our final guest of the day, Byron York, chief political correspondent at the Washington Examiner and a Fox News contributor. He is back. And, Byron, good to have you. Hello, Guy. Good to be here. I would like to start with your piece in the Washington Examiner, just trying to set the record straight and fact-check this very common talking point now, and it's almost amazing that this needs to be said and spelled out in black and white, but evidently it does. There are some people, quite a few people actually, who are arguing that it's a lie, it's a distortion, it's not true when conservatives talk about illegal immigrants entering this country unlawfully, that that's actually correct. For example, some of the people who have been flown to Martha's Vineyard or bus to other places, they're saying on the left, no, these people didn't break the law. They didn't come into the country illegally. They're asylum seekers. That's different. And to treat them like they're illegal immigrants and to use that term is a misnomer and unfair and probably racist, right? That's kind of the gist of it. You walk through very patiently in this piece trying to explain in detail why they are absolutely dead wrong on this. Please explain for our audience what the truth is.
2: Yeah, this did come to the fore most recently. It's been around for a while, but most recently with this Venezuelan uh, Martha's Vineyard uh, case. And I wrote a story and basically said the problem with all everyone's freaking out about this is that it ignores the real problem. We're talking about how to accommodate illegal border crossers uh, once they're in the country and not how to prevent people from crossing illegally into the United States. And I got this wave of indignant reaction. And people said, they are not illegal. They are seeking asylum. They are following U.S. law. This is not illegal. And I'm thinking, no, it's it's got to be illegal. And um, so you look at the law, and it is, in fact – against the law, the Immigration and Nationality Act, to cross the U.S. border without authorization uh, between uh, ports of entry. And it's just illegal in every circumstance to do that. And especially in the the case of the Venezuelans in particular, we have testimony from them that they waded across the Rio Grande. And that is not an official, authorized U.S. port of entry. Wait, just so everyone knows, wading across the river is not an authorized way to enter the United States. Obviously. And it, well, it would seem obvious, wouldn't it? Um, and the, the thing is, is that once you do that, once you do that and you're apprehended, and most of these people actually turn themselves in to the border uh, patrol, you are um, placed in, in something called a, re- a removal process you You are what you were what's called removable, and the process begins to remove you back out of the country because you're here without authorization. That is when you say no, I am seeking asylum, and you have a legal right to do that it's It's as if you're accused of a crime if you're any other sort of crime in the united states you you rob a convenience store, you turn yourself into police. Well, you have several legal defenses available to you at, the time, at, at that point, and it's not against the law to invoke, assert those legal defenses. And that's what uh, asylum is. But it doesn't mean that you didn't rob the convenience store. Right, the, underlying act, do, the
0: underlying act, the underlying act is still illegal. And if they're going to start a removal process against you and you have an appeal within that process, you are undergoing the process in the first place because the way that you entered the country was against the law. It's, it's really pretty elementary. At least that's how it seems to me. It does seem elementary, and
2: and listen, I I checked with a number of authorities uh, about this, and um, I mean they're in removal proceedings. That's just the normal course of things, and you cannot even make the asylum claim. Until you're in removal proceedings, and why are you in removal proceedings? because you entered the United States illegally. So we can talk about reforming our asylum laws and process. that That would be a reasonable conversation to have. But just don't tell me that if you wade across the uh, Rio Grande River into Texas, uh, that you have followed U.S.
0: law or because if you scaled fact, you a fence US or you've gone through a tunnel or whatever it is, unless you present yourself at one of these designated points of entry and then claim asylum and then the adjudication process begins, that is the way to do it. That's the process. It's, of course, it's overwhelmed. It's overrun. It's being abused. If you do something other than that and enter U.S. sovereign territory, you have broken the law. That is just a fact, and it's very odd, although maybe not that surprising to me, that there are people trying to muddy the waters on something that basic because I think when we have a clear debate using widely understood terms about what's happening, they lose, which is why they have to constantly play games with the language and – Do these sort of mental rhetorical gymnastics and perform that kind of thing in order to confuse people, Byron. I do want to just pick up on something that you were talking about, the asylum process that we might want to reform. Then I just mentioned it as well. We know, and you mentioned this also in your piece, we know that many people at least try to claim asylum. And they've been coached often by the cartels and the coyotes. Here are the buzzwords that you use that might be able to trigger this process where you'll at least have a chance to be considered an a legitimate asylum seeker. A lot of the people who make those claims are not making them truthfully or they're stretching or bending the truth. And ultimately, an overwhelming majority of people who try to go that route are rejected because they are not bona fide cases. I think that is another important part of this picture and this story. And to sort of Pretend as though asylum seekers are a completely different category than just run-of-the-mill illegal immigrants. That is another game that's being played here to exploit a system that is just completely collapsing under the weight of this whole crisis.
2: Yeah. Now, asylum is legitimately available to people who can prove that they are being persecuted because of their their race, their identity, uh, their membership in a particular uh, group, and they're being um, persecuted because of this in their home country. Uh, it is very clearly not a grounds for asylum if you want a better life, if you are seeking economic improvement. Admirable as that motive might be, it is simply not a basis for Asylum, and this is not just me talking. Um, Alejandro Mayorkas, the Biden-appointed uh, secretary of um, Homeland Security, in his uh, confirmation hearings confirmed this. I mean, they they kept saying, "Listen, is is coming here for economic improvement." For a better quality of life. Is that grounds for asylum? And he said, no, it is not. Now, maybe Congress would change that. But the the laws that exists now uh, is that it's not grounds. And you, you're exactly right. You have hundreds of thousands of people crossing the border, uh, many of them now claiming asylum. And they're actually coming, as I was just saying. For a better life, they're not coming because they—they're fleeing persecution because of their identity in their home country. They're coming uh, to make more money and improve their lives, and that is not a basis. And many, most of them. If they choose to even go through the whole asylum process, and you have to remember, a number of them are given what are called notices to appear right. and in they don't. court to begin this process, and then they don't begin it. But even if they go through the whole thing, maybe 90% of them are not granted asylum. It doesn't work.
0: Yep, and I always make this point. I'll say it again. I don't blame them for wanting to come here and wanting a better life. I might do the exact same thing. It doesn't give them the right to be here, and it doesn't mean that our laws don't exist and aren't important. So I think you can sort of empathize with people without saying, well, because of that, let's just throw open the borders and see what happens. You can hold both of these thoughts in your head at the same time. I think a serious country has to do that. Meanwhile, Byron, this is related. Soundbite from The View, I believe on Friday, a few points being made on the immigration issue by some of those ladies over there. Let's listen together to cut 20.
5: Republicans talk every day against communism and against socialism and yet they have no conscience and no qualms about using victims of communism and socialism as political pawns and a political stunt to get them the base out how dare you go against communism and use these victims of communism for your political gain that's what's so interesting to me that there are so many um latinos that vote republican because they vote against their own self-interest if you really are interested in these types of issues Mm -hmm. then you're a democrat
0: all right so let's just set aside sonny hostin and her casual bigotry and arrogance telling an entire race of people what they should think their self-interest is based on her decision for them. Obviously, a lot of them are reaching a different conclusion. She's mad about that. But the first part of that, Byron, Ana Navarro, saying basically these Republican hypocrites, they rail against communism, they rail against socialism, but here you have people escaping communist and socialist regimes and the Republicans are using them as pawns or you know, for the stunt that they're pulling or whatever. I would just say, number one, If there are people truly fleeing persecution at the hands of communists, I say welcome them in. Come on in. Let's give them citizenship. Those people tend to vote against the party of Ana Navarro and Sonny Hostin in The View. They vote for Republicans, and i love for them to be forced to kind of think about why I was talking about that earlier. But also, I think this is one of these sleight-of-hand arguments that we're seeing from the Democrats, and I was addressing this also earlier in the program. Pete Buttigieg repeated something similar where they're trying to pretend as though – This border crisis is being dominated by, you know, Venezuelans or Cubans and people fleeing communism. Again, I have no problem with a fair process playing out for people truly seeking asylum. But there have been two million people apprehended at the border this year alone, a million gotaways roughly under Biden and if you're looking at people who are truly being persecuted by communist regimes, it is a drop in that overall bucket. But for politically expedient reasons, they're focusing on that, I think, to try to make Republicans you know, look inconsistent or, or cynical or what have you. And to me, that is cynical unto itself.
2: And for people who are genuinely fleeing political persecution – we do have to actually adjudicate their case when they uh, arrive, and so that's important there. But it, what, what you're saying is that the vast, vast majority of people who are crossing the border illegally are not beco- uh, coming because of political persecution. Right. Uh, they're coming to build a better life in the United States, which is what our immigration process is for. And I and I think that uh, before we finish, we we have to say – Joe Biden, every single day of his presidency, has raised the incentive for people to cross illegally into the United States. That's right. They are making an entirely rational decision. I mean, they follow the news in the United States, and they know uh, what the president is doing. There's a a, a large network, a word-of-mouth network, a media network, social media network that tells them that if you cross illegally into the United States, there is a good chance you will be allowed to stay. Um, And so Biden has created this incentive, which has created this terrible mess on the border, and he has done absolutely nothing to reduce the incentive. You can have the vice president come out and say, do not come, and you can have Alejandro Mayorkas say the border is closed. People don't believe it because they know it's not true.
0: Exactly, and the people that are most responsible for this mess are not the migrants, although they have agency. The people who are responsible are the U.S. officials incentivizing this and allowing it to happen. And Megyn Kelly, I think, made a really good point on Twitter, and I hadn't really seen it distilled quite this way. A lot of Democrats and leftists are professing to be very angry and offended by, you know, the busing of migrants to sanctuary cities or flying them to Martha's Vineyard, a sanctuary destination. And first of all, they're being well taken care of. They've signed waivers. They're doing it on their own volition. The point here is not to be cruel and to punish the migrants. The point is to expose and punish the public officials who are embracing and celebrating, in many cases, these absolutely failed policies. That's what it comes down to. Last word to you, Byron.
2: And we have immigration laws. They were passed by Congress. The big one is the Immigration and Nationality Act, which is passed. In 1952 but has been amended many many times since then and that is what congress has chosen to do on immigration and if it has not chosen to pass some your preferred bill your democratic bill or your republican bill the the law is what it is yes and it would work if it were enforced
0: which is not happening to a large extent under this administration which is why they in my mind to put a finer point on it are overwhelmingly to blame for the crisis that we're seeing playing out. Everything else is misdirection and a distraction. Byron York here with a big major fact check that I think we needed to hear. Byron York of The Washington Examiner, Fox News contributor. Byron, thank you.
2: Thank you, Guy.
0: We'll be right back.
3: Guy Benson will be right back.
0: Welcome back. Thank you very much for listening to The Guy Benson Show. It's our happy hour. Well, President Biden is out there and he is on the stump and he's making a lot of points and criticisms of Republicans. He's trying to help his party at least minimize some of the damage in the upcoming midterm elections. Here's one interesting statistic that he offered to an audience over the weekend, cut 11.
9: And in 41 states plus the District of Columbia,
0: the average gasoline price is less than $2.99. Wow. That's some real improvement except as of the day that he said that he said 41 states plus DC had the average gas price less than 2.99 the actual number was 0 0 states had the average below 2.99 at the time that he said that i mean i don't know if that was a teleprompter failure or just uncle joe making something up that sounds good in his head but isn't actually correct gas is still much more expensive than it was when he took office and that little factoid that fun little nugget was just wrong then he also had this to say we might need a translator on this one cut 12
8: there's a lot more republicans out there taking credit for the new bridges and those bridges that are collapsing than actually voted for it i love going by and there you know and this is a great thing i voted against it but this is a great thing
0: big laughs they like the joke i don't exactly know what bonus and clapsons is But apparently Republicans want to take credit for it despite voting against it. I actually voted for the Bones and Clapsons before I voted against it. Little John Kerry throwback joke there. Ah, sweet Joe. And it's amazing how many of these Democrats don't want to appear with him on stage for some reason. What a mystery. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Back with more next.
3: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It
0: is the happy hour on this Monday from New York City. Thank you very much for tuning in. A very busy day on the show. Earlier on, we caught up with Charles C.W. Cook, senior writer at National Review. He's had a lot on his mind. We picked his brain. Here's part of that conversation. In case folks maybe have forgotten about it, it's now been a few weeks. The news cycle moves very quickly. Why do you think that this is so uniquely outrageous?
6: Well, it is uniquely outrageous, and it's not uniquely outrageous. It's the latest example of executive lawlessness, which has accelerated in the last 10 to 15 years and has largely gone unchecked, except perhaps at the polls. President Biden knows this is illegal. About a year ago, this was mooted as an idea for Congress, And certain members of Congress started saying, no, 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 he can do it on his own. Chuck Schumer said this. Elizabeth Warren said this. And Nancy Pelosi famously gave a press conference in which she said the president can't do this on his own. He needs Congress. In fact, Nancy Pelosi said most people don't know this. But she explained why. She said this wasn't even a question on the table. Uh, Fast forward a year, suddenly we start to hear rumblings that the president of the United States Joe Biden is going to do it anyway. What changed in the interim? Nothing. What changed since the Department of Education last year put out a memo saying it couldn't do it? Nothing. And nobody, nobody in the United States was pointing to the eventual rationale that the Biden administration gave, which was that uh, the esoteric post-9-11 law that was supposed to help people who volunteered uh, as soldiers or first responders, the 2003 HEROES Act somehow magically contained this provision that gave the president the capacity to write off student debt, by which we mean transfer it to the taxpayer, uh, if ever there is any sort of emergency in the United States. Uh, if you read this memo, Guy, it, it is embarrassing. I suspect that the lawyers who wrote it knew that they were on shaky ground. Um, and even if we accept that this law magically enables the president, the rationale the president gave for its use, that we're currently in an emergency, has been repeatedly undermined by his own words. Right. His administration said we're not in an emergency when they were trying to end Title 42 at the border. I thought uh, the administration was correct about that, even though I like the policy. Uh, the president said on 60 Minutes last week that there is no emergency, the pandemic – um is over so uh, to recap (laughs) the president knew it was illegal everyone else knew it was illegal they then picked a law that didn't apply to student loan forgiveness and they justified its use on grounds that they themselves have said don't apply
0: seems pretty comprehensive to me it seems like a fairly open and shut case you make it persuasively let's move to the next part of the problem here let's say people are willing to ignore that it's illegal i think a lot of people are On substance, I think it is terrible policy, deeply unfair, all sorts of moral hazard issues arising from it. Tackle that component of it, if you would.
6: Well, I I think it's an extraordinarily bad idea. I I think it's one of the worst ideas that we've seen come out of Washington uh, over the last five years. Uh, The president of the United States knew That it was a bad idea. This is evident. This was pushed by Elizabeth Warren. It was pushed by uh, Kamala Harris. It was pushed by Stacey Abrams. Um, Joe Biden knew it was a bad idea. Jill Biden knew it was a bad idea. Her main interest is education, and she's telling him, don't do it, don't do it. And and the reason for that um, is that it contains all sorts of moral hazards. Uh, Because it is a flash in the pan rather than structural reform, and because it helps the people who least need our help. Now, I am a free market guy. I'm not big on government aid. But if you're going to give government aid, you should be doing it to the people who are really struggling you should not be giving it to the group that has the lowest unemployment rate in the country that's college graduates or people with some college you should not be giving it to people who have the best health outcomes in the country that's college graduates you should not be giving it to the people who have the greatest earnings potential in the country that's college graduates you should not be giving it to people Uh, who did best during coronavirus, that's college graduates, and who have already benefited enormously from government lodges in about two years' worth of student loan um, payment deferrals, first under President Trump, now under President Biden. This is a hugely regressive move. This takes money, quite literally takes money, from people who don't have college degrees And gives it to people who do. Uh, And not because those people uh, were defrauded in some way. I I understand the argument for making whole people who went to universities uh, that turned out to be, um, you know, uncredited or or, or fraudulent or closed halfway through or what you will. Um, But people who borrowed the money, spent the money, and then benefited from it. This is (laughs) – I'm I'm laughing because – You know, we talk about forgiveness. This isn't forgiveness. Simply put, what we're talking about here is taking money from people who didn't go to college, didn't borrow money, uh, didn't benefit from borrowing money, and giving it to the people who did all of those things. And I I just think it's almost impossible um, to make an argument uh, in favor of it, but especially if you're going to do it in a way that doesn't actually change any of the underlying conditions that you're talking about. In the first place, it there's makes no it reform worse. of colleges here. Well, it does make it worse, yeah, but there's no reform here. There's no change to uh, the, 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 the cost of college. There's no change to the structure of college. There's no change um, to the incentives uh, underlying why people go to college. And also, it doesn't help people who paid off all of their loans last week, and it doesn't help the people who are going to take out loans for the first time next year. Uh, it's just a, a, a pre-midterm cash giveaway a, at the moment when we don't have any money left. Uh, we have deficits well into the future. We have more debt than we've ever had. We have debt that is, as a percentage of GDP, nearly 130%. Um, and we have rampant inflation. And you know, if you look back before COVID and before inflation in the post-COVID era, to how this was sold by its biggest advocates. It was always that this would stimulate the economy. If we give people money off their student debt, then it will stimulate the economy. It will lead to an increase in demand.
0: My full discussion with Charles C.W. Cook of National Review, available online, GuyBensonShow.com, also part of that free podcast Every single day, on demand, no charge, totally free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, we talked a little bit about football with Bill Hemmer last hour. A few other changes coming to the NFL. We'll get to that. Plus, a heartbreaking and heartwarming story at the same time out of Canada. All of that coming up.
3: For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com.
0: home stretch. On today's show, I'm Guy Benson. In New York City, I'll be back tomorrow for the show in D.C. But before that, Gutfeld tonight, 11 p.m. Eastern Fox News Channel, America's Newsroom tomorrow morning, 9 a.m. Eastern Fox News Channel. Our website here, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every day. Now, We referenced this before the break. We had talked a little bit about NFL football with Hemmer last hour. I saw the news earlier today that the NFL has decided to totally blow up their all-star game, the Pro Bowl event, and effectively replace the game with something totally different. They're not going to do a full-contact game between the AFC and the NFC all-stars or Pro Bowlers. Moving forward, at least for now, instead they're going to play flag football and week-long skills competitions, and they're going to call it and brand it the Pro Bowl games instead of the Pro Bowl game itself. And I will confess, as someone who's a bit of a sports fan, I do not like all-star games. I'm not interested in them. The one that I'll occasionally watch is the Major League Baseball one, although I wouldn't watch it last year because of what MLB did to Atlanta and that whole political nonsense. The hockey, it's just like a video game, NBA video game. And I will tell you, I have literally never watched a Pro Bowl, ever. Zero interest. I'll watch some regular season stuff. I'll watch the postseason in particular. No interest in the Pro Bowl. So I can't even say that I'm mad about this, because they're changing something that I don't watch anyway. I just think it's even less appealing now, but maybe I'm wrong. Dan is much more of an NFL fan than I am. Dan, do you have any strong reaction to what the NFL is doing here?
9: So I never really cared too much about the Pro Bowl. I like some of the other All-Star games, but not as much in the NFL. Um, in the last few years, it became two-hand touch anyways. So it wasn't very fun to watch. It's kind of fun to see the guys on the same team and throwing to each other this quarterback that. But I don't really care that much. I do think, though, that it is important, like saying this guy's like a 10-time Pro Bowler, and it kind of like adds to that thing. So it kind of takes away from that moving forward. So it's like a barometer for how good a guy was in his career. Um, but I don't really care if a guy is like the 10-time tire-throwing champion in one of these right. like events or something like that. So it doesn't, really, it doesn't really do anything for me.
0: Now, Christine, you're a brand-new football fan. Obviously, you are now very passionate. You're a hardcore NFL fan. Having never watched any football your whole life, that has all changed just a few weeks ago. By the way, how are your Lions doing?
10: Not so great. Yeah.
0: Did they lose another crushing game after teasing you yesterday and then losing like they always do? They sure did. Yeah. Yeah. How are you feeling about my advice not to adopt them as your team? Pretty good. Yeah.
10: (laughs) But what about the Bills? I was leaning towards the Bills. Uh
0: Uh-oh. Did you see the video of the coordinator up in the booth <laughs> losing his mind and, like, trashing the booth at the end of the game?
10: That's, that's like me when someone cancels on this show. You yes. should see the outrage. I <laughs> can't
0: confirm. <laughs> when, a, when a guest cancels last minute, you cookies breaking stuff, throwing things, Ugh, you have to figure out other ways to get your negative energy out. That's you could, right. like,
10: join, Mama's like, a, a
0: boxing gym or something.
10: That's what, what do you think the mama's juice is for? Oh, I
0: see. Drinking is your coping mechanism. Um, I, I, I have money
10: it. on the game tonight again.
0: You're betting on football again. I feel
10: good about this one tonight.
0: Well, you always feel good about your bets.
10: But I actually spoke to, like, an actual sports reporter here, and he gave me confidence that I was in the right direction.
0: And you're betting against the Giants. I sure
10: am.
9: Hmm. I, I had to t- teach her what a parlay was today. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of
0: interesting. Yeah, my that.
10: husband said, thank you, Dan.
0: I'm going to, again, reiterate my position that you should not be betting on sports, especially a sport that you have yet to master, I think, is a fair way of it. But I need money. Yeah, but you can also lose money, as you already have, actually, in this exact endeavor.
10: So Bobby tried to have this whole talk with me this weekend about, like, overspending. So... A few packages came, and he I, they're in by my desk because oh. he wants me to return them. I need the money. Make,
0: you'll make it up by gambling. Mm-hmm. This never goes a bad way. Never heard this story before. It'll work out fine. Don't you worry, Christine. Good life choices as usual. Uh, I won't ask you about the Pro Bowl. I, I feel like you probably have never seen a Pro Bowl before. No, I, I just mean, learned
10: about it today, actually. yeah.
0: In fairness, I also have never seen a Pro Bowl because it's boring and lame. Instead, I want to ask you about Wait, this. but
10: I have an opinion about it. Okay. I, uh, good. Let's do away with that. I don't need my players risking it in a game that means nothing. Can you bet on a Pro Bowl?
0: I'm sure you
9: can.
10: Oh. No, I'm sticking with, no. No, 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 no. There
9: are tons of prop bets for the Pro Bowl, and it's kind of fun, to be honest. Prop bets.
10: What is that? Ooh, what's that?
9: Like little things, like coin toss, like if it's going to be heads or tails, you could bet on things like that. You can
0: bet on all sorts of little, tiny, micro things over the course of an event, like, you know, Super Bowl stuff. I think I've heard sometimes they'll even have bets on whether the national anthem will last more than a certain amount of time. That's a big one. Yeah,
10: I want to. I want to bet on the game.
0: Yeah, well, just that's how it starts, Christine. Let's check back in a few months and see how desperate you are. I want to completely change gears, though. What I wanted to ask you about, Christine, was not the NFL stuff, not the Pro Bowl, but instead. This story, and I can't decide whether it's heartwarming or heartbreaking, but it's kind of a little bit of both, out of Canada. The gist of the story is a mother and father were told, sort of like a a parent's nightmare, I would imagine, that of their four children, doctors told them that three of them have this rare genetic disorder that the doctors believe will eventually cause three of their four kids to go completely blind by middle age. And so it's degenerative, and the doctors believe that by middle age, these kids, three of the four of them, will not be able to see at all. Now, miraculously, according to one of these stories, one of the kids shows no signs of the disorder developing or progressing, which is good news. But two of the other kids do have this issue. And if the doctors are right, at some point, hopefully decades from now, they won't be able to see. And so this was a gut punch for the parents who were very, very upset about this for all the obvious reasons, and one of the pieces of advice that they got from doctors and experts was just flood your children at a young age with lots and lots of videos and photographs of everything you can imagine so they can see as many things as possible to imprint those memories on their brain, and that will help them later in life as they can't see anymore. They'll have been exposed to so many things. So, you know, by photo books and all this kind of thing. And the mother said, in that moment, something clicked, and they just decided that they were going to spend the early years of their kids' lives traveling extensively and showing them everything the world can possibly offer in sort of an upbeat, positive, happy way. And they have been, as a family unit, crisscrossing the globe, experiencing life in this sort of incredible, joyful way One of the stories that I read at Yahoo News, it started with a lead where they're in Bali and they're going to see elephants and all this kind of thing. It's great that this family has the means to do this. I think this is such a proactive and wonderful way to address something that is so tragic and scary. And as a parent, Christine, I just wonder how this story hit you.
10: This this is heartbreaking. Um, what these parents are doing for these children is absolutely amazing because ugh, I I can't even imagine just what they're going through. But to fill their children's head up, you know, with images and w- that that they will look back on and be able to, you know, drop in their own mind is is a gift that, oh my, God, I just very very hard to.
0: Think about this. So they're doing this year-long world tour. (sighs) Namibia. I mean, they're going all over the place. And the quote from the mother is, we're determined to fill their visual memories with nice souvenirs so that once they're blind, they'll have so many nice pictures in their heads that they can refer back to. And it's sort of amazing what a creative way to deal with this. The photos, as I said, as you look at them, are actually wonderful. It's the family experiencing life together and basically cementing these snapshots in their forming minds that hopefully later in life will be something they can draw on when, if, and when, and we pray it doesn't happen, this disease takes its course. but. I saw it and I thought we had to talk about it because it was just sort of an amazing human interest story. God bless this family up in Canada. I hope these kids have the time of their lives and that these memories do last a lifetime. And if they do end up with this struggle, as the doctors expect, then they're banking a lot of cool stuff right now. So good for the family. And with that, we're out of time here. Back on the radio, same time as always, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern tomorrow. Gutfeld tonight, America's newsroom in the morning. Hope to see you one or both places. In the meantime, have a great night. Thank you for listening to The Guy Benson Show.